I'd like you to turn in your I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If we excluded Jesus, am I on? I'm on. If we excluded Jesus, who would you consider to be the greatest preacher of all time? I think if you took a moment, the Apostle Paul would certainly be at the top of your list. Though we never heard him speak, we have read some of his manuscripts, and his letters are inspired, and the results of his ministry are profound. In fact, if I could go to a preaching seminar or take a course in seminary on preaching led by any preacher in history, I would choose Paul. He is the quintessential preacher. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we have what I believe is a synopsis of what that course would contain. This is, in essence, the syllabus for the course on preaching. You say, well, Dan, I don't need that course because I'm not a preacher. Well, I would argue that you are. Because the word used in verse 1 where it says proclaiming the testimony of God is actually a simple term that means to declare, to share, to talk. And every believer is a preacher in that sense. You may not stand behind a pulpit and communicate the gospel, but you are to be proclaiming the gospel through music or through a Sunday school class or to your family or to your friends. And so the principles in this passage apply to any kind of Christian service because they are really principles on how to be effective for God. And we can divide the syllabus into two parts. The first part is things you don't need to be to be effective for God. Now when we stand up here and say you need to get involved and serve, there are some things that some of you hide behind in terms of excuses. They sound something like this. I can't because I'm not a super speaker. I can't because I'm not super smart. I can't because I'm not a super socializer. I can't because I'm not super sufficient. Well, guess what? Those are the very things you don't need to be effective for God. Notice how Paul explains that. He says, first of all, you don't need to be a super speaker. Look at verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. Paul didn't come to Corinth waxing eloquent. In fact, did you know that Paul was not a super speaker? You see, most people heard Paul preach and they went away saying, that was nice but I'd rather hear Apollos. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to show you what the Apostle Paul says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, But his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech is contemptible. Now, we often view the Apostle Paul as eloquent and dynamic. 
We're going to have the men's retreat next weekend. We typically have a, uh, an evaluation of the weekend. And we say, well, how was the food? How was the music? How was the recreation? How was the speaker? Well, in that day, if they had handed out a card saying, how was the Apostle Paul? And on the card, you could grade him on these things. Great, good, average, poor, contemptible. They picked contemptible. That's a word that means worthless. I heard him speak and he was worthless as a speaker. While you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look at chapter 11 and verse 6. Because here Paul as much as admits this, he says in verse 6, But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In other words, I know the truth, even though I'm not very skilled in communicating it. You see, Paul was not a skillful speaker. And there's some evidence for that in Acts chapter 20 when Eutychus fell asleep and fell out the window during church. <laughs> Who was the preacher? Paul. Now I have to give him that it was midnight when it happened. It's kind of like Tuesday I have to eat and speak at campus outreach and those guys start at 9 o'clock. Kind of like, 9 o'clock? That's past my bedtime. I may fall asleep. During the time Paul wrote this letter, Greek oratory was at its height. You've probably heard of Demosthenes. He was an excellent speech writer but had a weak voice and didn't enunciate very well. And so legend has it that his teacher told him to go into a cave by the seashore to fill his mouth with pebbles and to practice speaking above the sound of the surf. In fact, we're told that he actually shaved half his head so that he wouldn't come out of the cave out of embarrassment, so he would stay in there and keep practicing. So he put the pebbles in his mouth and he would talk with the pebbles in his mouth above the sound of the waves. And gradually he would take out one pebble at a time until he became a, an eloquent orator. One little boy who heard that story said, what's an orator? His teacher said, well, an orator is kind of like a preacher today. And so somebody asked the little boy, how do you become a preacher? And he said, well, you fill your mouth with marbles and you stand in the shower and you talk above the sound of the water and you keep practicing talking until you remove one marble at a time and when you lose all your marbles, <laughs> you're a preacher. There's some truth to that. God doesn't need super speakers. God needs faithful speakers. You know why? Because it's the message that's super, not the messenger. And the message is simple. You don't need a super speaker with a simple message. In fact, if there's a mistake that we make today, it's that we try to make the gospel too complicated. Did you know that the average preacher speaks about 250 words a minute? A little slower in the South. In fact, I've heard some preachers speak at 300 words a minute with gusts up to 450. 
But see, if I was speaking for 40 minutes at 250 words a minute, that would mean that I'm going to share 10,000 words with you. The Ten Commandments only contain 297 words. If you talk fast, you can say them in one minute. The story of the prodigal son only contains 504 words. It takes two minutes to read. The message Peter gave at Pentecost is only comprised of 553 words. A little over two minutes. On the other hand, our federal government has issued a directive to regulate the price of cabbage. It contains 26,000 words. It would take you an hour and 44 minutes to read it out loud. You see, those things that are most memorable are not the most complex. Someone has said biscuits and sermons are both improved with a little bit of shortening. I know what some of you are thinking. <laughs> Practice what you preach. Well, believe me, I shorten it. I shorten it from two hours down to what you get. In 1863, they were dedicating the cemetery at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. You know who the main speaker was that afternoon? If you say Abraham Lincoln, you're wrong. The main speaker was a popular orator by the name of Edward Everett. He spoke for two hours nonstop. And when he finished, the audience applauded. And then Abraham Lincoln stood up and shared some remarks that he had scribbled on the back of an envelope. He said exactly 266 words, which took all of 90 seconds. And when he finished, the audience sat in total silence. Which of those two messages are remembered today? Edward Everett's two-hour speech or Abraham Lincoln's two-minute speech? Well, we remember four score and seven years ago. You see, you don't have to be eloquent to be remembered. You don't have to be complex to be remembered. You don't have to be long-winded to be remembered. And that illustrates the first principle here. You don't need to be a super speaker to be used by God. Secondly, you don't need to be super smart. You may be sitting there saying, well, I don't have the intellect to teach a Sunday school class. I don't have the knowledge to share my faith one-on-one -on -one with someone. Well, listen to what Paul says. Look again at verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't come with superiority of speech, and I didn't come with superiority of wisdom. Then look at verse 4. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. There are a lot of preachers who like to use double-jointed, convoluted, 16-syllable words. 
I've heard people come away from hearing preachers and said, man, that guy's deep. You say, well, how do you know he's deep? I didn't understand a word he said. He must be deep. And I think we need to understand that Jesus didn't say, feed my giraffes. He said, feed my sheep. What we need to do is take it off the top shelf and bring it down to the bottom shelf where people can understand it and get access to it. That's why the key to effective preaching is kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. I love the paraphrase. Jesus came into the coast of the theological seminary. He asked the theologians saying, who do men say that I am? They said, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're one of the prophets. Jesus said, but whom do you say that I am? And they said, thou art the ground of being. Thou art the prolectic, ontological incarnation. Thou art the unphrasable, unverbalized, existential, unprobational encounter with the finitude of subjective experience. And Jesus said unto them, Huh? <laughs> so you don't have to be super smart to be used by God. In the late 1800s, D.L. Moody went over to England to speak at Cambridge University. Moody had little more than an eighth grade education. And those students at Cambridge were sort of insulted that this backwoods American preacher was come to, coming to speak to them. And so their intent was to harass him off the platform. When he arrived, Moody had Ira Sankey sing a song which quieted the audience and then he stood up and began with these words. Young gentlemen, don't ever think God don't love you, for he do. And he used that phrase throughout his sermon and throughout his series of messages there. And those Cambridge students not only didn't harass him off the stage, but they listened and they responded. And those meetings sparked one of the great awakenings of the 19th century. You don't have to be super smart to be used by God. Third, you don't need to be a super socializer. You know, Paul was not a back-slapping extrovert. Look at verse 3. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul didn't have a lot of personal charisma he didn't have a gregarious personality. He just loved Jesus so much and loved people so much that it just came out. Look again at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Look at the end of the verse. Paul says, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Now he's obviously responding to a criticism about the Apostle Paul. 
The criticism, the criticism was that he writes bold letters, but in person, he's meek. In person, he's timid. In person, he's not very electric. One of the most powerful preachers in American history was Jonathan Edwards. He preached probably the most profound sermon in American history, a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's said that when he preached that sermon that people literally cried out in the congregation and held on to the back of the pew in front of them for fear that they would fall into hell while he was preaching. But he, like Paul, didn't have a gregarious personality. Lewis Drummond, in his book on the Great Awakening, said this about Jonathan Edwards. He said, we would hardly have called him a dynamic preacher. He laboriously read every word from a manuscript. Not only that, his eyesight and writing were so poor, he held the manuscript only inches from his nose, rarely looking at the congregation. You don't have to be a super socializer to be used by God. In fact, while you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 10 again. It says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. When Paul walked into the room, his presence was unimpressive. He didn't look like a preacher. I don't know where we got, got the idea of what a preacher looks like. But I would argue that if the greatest preacher in history didn't look like a preacher, then maybe we shouldn't look like preachers. He came in and he was unimpressive as far as his personality went. In fact, look at Galatians chapter 4 for a moment. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 13. Writing to the Galatians, he says, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Now, there was something, some kind of bodily illness with Paul that caused him to stay in Galatia and preach to them. We don't know what that bodily illness was. We can speculate because when he ends this letter in chapter 6 and verse 11, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you. So when Paul wrote, he wrote with large letters because apparently his eyesight was not good. Some have projected that this was the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He had some kind of problem with his eyes that probably made his eyes bug out and maybe even run, ooze out stuff. And we know he had some kind of physical illness that was obvious to people because in Galatians chapter 4, look at verse 14. He said, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. That's interesting. Paul says, you know, I want to thank you guys for not loathing me when I got up to preach. Thank you for not gagging when you saw The word means literally to vomit. Thank you for not throwing up when you saw me. 
Here's the Apostle Paul, not a super speaker. When it came to his personality, he was not gregarious, and he had problems physically, probably with his eyes, that made him kind of look disgusting, and people had trouble looking at him. Can you imagine a speaker with ooze running down his face out of his eyes, and they're bugging out, and you're kind of going, ugh. I'm going to hang in there and listen, but ugh. Thanks for not loathing me when you saw me. Greatest preacher of all time. And then fourth, you don't have to be super sufficient. Look again at verse 3. You've got to go back to 1 Corinthians 2. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul was the preacher with stage fright. You know what stage fright is? That's when you stand up to speak and fear kind of freezes your brain. Someone has said that the human brain is an amazing organ. It begins working the moment you're born, and it doesn't stop until you stand up to speak. Did you know that the Apostle Paul had stage fright? He didn't swagger up to preach. He wasn't filled with self-confidence. He got up with fear and trembling. His knees would knock. I can relate to that. I grew up thinking that next to death, standing up in front of an audience was the scariest thing imaginable. When I was in elementary school and I had to stand up in front of a group, the paper would shake in my hands and my knees would rattle together and I I just hated the idea of getting up in front of people. We were talking at the co-ed softball game the other night about getting nervous before big games and I happened to mention that sometimes before an important basketball game I would actually throw up be so nervous, so anxious about the game, I'd throw up. It kind of helped to have an empty stomach anyway. Rich Martin said to me, have you ever thrown up before a sermon? And I said, yeah, I have. I've been so anxious about it, so excited about a sermon, so focused on a sermon, that I have literally thrown up before a sermon. And in classic Rich Martin fashion, he said, I've thrown up during your sermons before. (laughs) He was setting me up. You don't need self-sufficiency to be effective for God. In fact, God chooses to use people who lack self-sufficiency. God chooses people who say, I can't. Remember Moses? He said, I can't. I've got a thick tongue. He called Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, I can't do it. I'm too young. He called Jonah. Jonah didn't even make excuses. He just ran away. So listen, if you're saying, I'm not a skilled speaker, I'm not very smart, I'm not an extrovert, I'm not self-confident, it makes me nervous to talk about Jesus, You are qualified because you don't need those things to be used by God. In fact, I would argue that those very things can stand in the way of you being used by God. And then the second point. 
things you do need to be effective for God. Three of them. Number one, you do need to be resolute. Paul says, I'm not eloquent. I'm not wise. I'm not socially charismatic. I'm not self-confident, but I am resolute. Look at verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's message wasn't very complicated. He focused on the cross. If you want to be effective for God, don't talk about the good Lord. Don't talk about how God helps those who help themselves. Don't talk about how we're all God's children. Talk about the cross. And I want you to notice something. Paul says, I determined to talk about the cross. Why did he have to determine to do that? Well, because proclaiming the cross of Christ is not popular. Remember chapter 1 and verse 23? But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. That's why you have to be resolute. You that are going out on the short-term mission trips this summer, be resolute that the focus of your message is going to be the cross of Jesus Christ. Have you ever met, visited the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City? I went there years ago. And they have stained glass windows depicting the stages of the life of Jesus. And you have a tour guy that kind of takes you through and he, he stops at each stained glass window and he kind of explains each stage in the life of Christ. And I'll never forget that when he got to the window of Jesus on the cross, he simply said, this is the crucifixion. We don't make much of the cross. Let's go on to the burial. You know, Mormons are fine moral people. Very family-oriented. Got a lot of good basketball players. But they don't believe in the atoning death of Jesus on the cross for salvation. And if you want to be effective for God, make much of the cross. Paul didn't just say it was his priority. He says it's the only thing he talked about. You know, it's interesting that Jesus only gave us two ordinances. He only commanded us to do two rituals, two symbolic acts. One is baptism which is a picture of our death with him. And the other is communion, the bread and the cup depicting the body and the blood of Jesus. Both of those ordinances bring us back to the death of Jesus on the cross. And the reason is because that should be the center of our focus. If I knew I only had one more message to preach it would be on the cross of Jesus Christ you ever wonder why when you're reading the gospels the gospel writers are telling the life of Jesus and his, took, his life took about 33 years and you read through the gospel and, and the first 33 years take about two thirds of the gospel and then the gospel suddenly slows down 
And at least the last third of every gospel deals with the last week in Jesus' life. Why? Because the focus is on the cross. That's the purpose for his coming. And if you're going to be effective for God, you need to be resolute that the cross is the center of your message. Second, if you're going to be effective for God, you do need to be dependent. Look at verse 4. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, or that can read, or in demonstration of the Spirit's power. And that Greek word power is the word dunamos, from which we get our word dynamite or dynamo. How do you get the power of the Spirit? Well, interestingly enough, He shows up when you're most inadequate. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, When I am weak, then am I strong. That's why Paul can say, I don't come with my eloquence. I don't come with my wisdom. I don't come with my flashy personality. I don't come with my self-confidence because I want to get me out of the way and let him do the work. Whatever area you're serving in, whether it's singing or playing an instrument or keeping the nursery or teaching a Sunday school class or leading a small group or ushering, you need to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because anything you do in the flesh counts for zero in heaven. Jesus said it this way in John 15, 5, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now the reality is that apart from his power we can do some things. You can sing without his power. I can preach without his power. You can teach without his power, but Jesus is saying in heaven's accounting terms, when you do it in your own strength, it's a big zero. And the fruit that you bear is not eternal fruit. People ask me if I still get nervous when I preach. And the answer is absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't think I'm nervous so much in getting up in front of people because I do it so much. But I'm nervous because I am sharing the most valuable message in the universe. It's kind of like if you were moving and you said, Dan, I want you to carry our crystal family heirloom. It's been in the family since the Civil War and we want you to carry it into our house. I would get a little nervous doing that. Well, God has entrusted us with the most valuable message in the universe, the gospel, that makes a difference in people's lives eternally. And if that doesn't make you a little bit nervous to have the responsibility of sharing that, then you don't have a pulse. Or you don't have an eternal perspective. One of the beauties of feeling inadequate one of the beauties of being nervous is that it makes me more dependent upon God. It makes me get on my knees before every message and say, God, I can't do this. You need to fill me 
with your spirit. Because there's a limit to what I can do. I can talk, I can inform, I can teach, I can challenge, I can encourage, but I can't convict of sin. I can't draw anybody to Christ. I can't change a person's heart. I can't transform a life. I can tell a scary story that brings fear. I can tell a sad story that might bring tears, but I can't bring conviction. I can't bring salvation. I can't bring sanctification. I can't do any of those things that only God can do. And so I have to be dependent upon Him. And then thirdly, if you're going to be effective for God, you do need to be transparent. Look at verse 5. This is the summation of it all. He says, So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul says, if I were a super speaker and super smart and a super socializer and super sufficient, people might be trusting in me. But God doesn't want competition. You see, Paul was transparent. He took the focus off of himself and he put it on God. And I think many in ministry today are missing this attribute. We've got a lot of celebrities in Christianity today. Christendom, I would call it today. A lot of celebrities. Some of them aren't even preachers. They're just celebrities. We've got a lot of preachers today who rely heavily on their own wisdom and their own cleverness. Pragmatism reigns today. Does it work? And if it works, it really doesn't matter. If it's biblical, let's just do it. I'm afraid many preachers approach evangelism in much the same way a used car salesman approaches a customer. We'll, we'll give him the message. We'll put the costs in fine print. So he won't read those until he's made the commitment. And there are many preachers, I'm afraid, that depend upon their own ability to persuade. And because of that, I fear that many people have been led to Christ by slick salesmanship. But the reality is that you can't trick somebody into the kingdom of God. Charles Spurgeon used to tell the story about a preacher friend of his who was walking down the street one day and a drunk rolled out of the alley into his feet. And the preacher looked down, the man looked up, and the drunk said, Pastor, I'm one of your converts. And he said, I thought... You probably were. You look like my convert. You see, when we make converts of ourselves, they don't last. I can think of about a handful of people that have come up to me and said, you know, Dan, the only reason I'm in this church is because of your preaching. And they mean that as a compliment. But you know what's interesting? I think about those, that handful of people, and guess what? They're not here anymore. They dropped out. If you're making a preacher the reason why you're committed to Christ or the reason why you're involved in a church, you're not going to last because I can't keep disciples. Only Christ can. 
I don't want to make disciples of me. I want to make disciples of Jesus. I don't want people trusting in my wisdom. I want people trusting in God's power. And I don't want you going away from here saying, what an awesome preacher. I want you going away from here saying, what an awesome God. See, that's how to be a great preacher in God's eyes or a great Sunday school teacher, or a great nursery worker, or a great servant of His. Be resolute, focused on the cross. Be dependent on the Spirit of God. And be transparent, allowing God to shine through you. We're going to close this morning by having the praise team come back. And we're going to sing that song, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And we're going to say to the Lord, it's all about you. And that's really the message this morning. It's all about the Lord Jesus. And I don't know how God has spoken to your heart this morning, but I'm going to let you respond however he may be challenging you. There will be people at the front that can pray with you if you'd like to pray with someone this morning for your needs before the Lord. I also know there are some people that want to join this morning. You come as we sing together in closing. Let's stand as we sing together and let's sing this to the Lord.